The word of God is the only good medicine for the soul. Actually, the word commandment in Greek in tole has a root meaning of prescription, like a doctor would prescribe for you. The word of God is the only good medicine for the soul. If you had a sickness that over time would certainly cause an early death, and you had a doctor who prescribed you a medicine that he said if you took it uh, every day, one in the morning and one at night, that the sickness would not overwhelm you, but that you would live a, a normal, long, healthy life without any sickness. Would you hesitate to take that pill or that medication? And of course, you wouldn't. But then again, you would have to trust the doctor. If the doctor told you that the medication had been proven thousands of times over and that it would prove to be successful, you'd believe him and you'd take it. In 1 Thessalonians 2.13, which is our passage today, Paul makes the distinction between the possible two sources of the Word of God. One being man. If the Word of God comes from man, that's one thing. But the other is God. If the Word of God comes from God, then that's another thing. And it makes a huge difference. The difference is in its authority. The difference is in its ability to do what the Word of God in and of itself promises, which is to heal the sicknesses that each of us have, that you and I both have in our souls. And that difference is one that will make all the difference in your own life. If you truly believe that the Almighty God is the one who has given the Word of God, then you'll desire it, you'll uh, hear it, you'll study it, and you'll take it in as medication, knowing full well that over time it's going to heal everything that ails you in your soul. So as we turn to, let's open up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, and uh, let's open up in prayer. As we pray, let's remember that the Word of God is alive and powerful and that it is precious, uh, that it is what it claims to be from God and a healer of all things and instructs us in the ways of God and the ways of ourselves. And so we should always hear the Word of God with a heart of humility and of reverence and of thankfulness. So with that, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for this letter to the Thessalonians that you have preserved for us so that we can see its impact and its content so that we can be healed in our own hearts. We see that the Thessalonians, Father, way back when, were very positive towards your word, that they, they accepted it as from you. And it did great things in them. We look to the same thing, Father. Each of us turn to your word and by the spirit within us know that you, it will reveal to us who you are, who your son is, and the great plan that you have for our lives. Father, we ask that through your spirit we would be inspired and enlightened so that we would have those changes in our own lives and in our own souls. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So 1 Thessalonians 2.13, I think we'll pretty much stick here again for today. Uh, we were here yesterday, and the, the topic of what the Word of God can do for a believer is something that is, needs to be uh, reminded to all of us. Uh, we all need to be reminded of it. Uh, we all need to understand that the Word of God is the one and only thing that is going to reveal God. And uh, it's very easy as a believer to forget that, uh, to forget that it is the word alone that works within us. Uh, and, and also while we're, and we've been talking a lot lately about um, the, the, the work that we have to do, the life that we have to live, and by that, um, the, the accountability that we have to God to live the life that he's given us. And we can forget as we're striving and reaching ahead to our upward call that the Word of God itself is alive, that it is God himself uh, 
and that the Word of God supernaturally does work within us. The Word of God transforms us. Uh, The Word of God makes a hard heart into a soft heart. The Word of God overcomes addictions. The Word of God (coughs) uh, turns a bitter soul into a humble soul. And all of this happens by a quite supernatural way. The, uh, the, different, the reason why some believers don't have that and, and have their lives transformed by the Word of God is that they're, of course, either not listening to it, uh, and that's, that's obviously, if you're not going to receive God's Word, it's not going to do you any good. Uh, but all, and the other thing is, is that they won't have faith in it. If a person doesn't have faith in what the Word of God will do, when under pressure, they will choose something else. Uh, and that, that something else is generally a humanistic, worldly, uh, satanic uh, method of dealing with life. It may be an addiction. It may be a bitterness, an anger. It may be an, an, uh, <clears throat> whatever. Whatever we do, that rather than doing what God's Word says in a certain situation, we do something else. And that something else is always uh, takes our eyes off of the Word of God. It takes our eyes off of God and puts us in a place where you know we're basically on our own with our own method of dealing with things. And that never works out well. So 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul says, for this reason, we also constantly thank God. We saw this yesterday that Paul's, uh, you should not overlook the fact that Paul says he thanks God and not the Thessalonians, or even himself, or his team, like meaning Silas and Timothy. Uh, but he thanks God that when, and so uh, for this reason we also constantly thank God, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is. That word really is also could be translated truly. Um, <clears throat> you received the word of God not from us, you know, not from men. In other words, you did not think that this word, which changed your life, was a product of Paul, because it was not. It's a product of God, is God-given, and they accepted it that way. And that made all the difference, because, as he'll say at the end here, he says, you, re- you received it or accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. And so, in that last part, it looks like Paul may be talking about all believers, but in actuality, it is more likely that Paul is referring to the faithful. And that's because this, the verb there, believe, is a participle in the present tense, and a present participle usually refers to a continued action. And in this case, in the context, it definitely looks that way that he's referring, the Thessalonians accepted the word of God as from God. They put their faith in it. You know, what Paul said about things, they believed as coming from God. Uh, what they had, Paul had taught them. And you can bet that somebody was there writing it down, that uh, there were, you know, not, not scriptural books written yet, but there were some who were literate, who would have taken the things that Paul told them and written them down so that they wouldn't forget them. And as they referred back to the things that Paul said, they, uh, as they taught it to one another, as the leaders that Paul had left behind before he left, uh, those who would likely in the future become pastors of the churches in that area, uh, were referring to the things that Paul had taught and teaching it and reminding others and uh, in their communities, and Paul, and by that, by using the word that they had heard, they continued to believe it, and that makes all the difference. So, what we're referring to here is the faithful. If we're faithful to the word of God, or as we'll see coming up in the book of Hebrews, if we mix the promises of God and the commands of God with faith, then the, we reap its benefits. Notice it says that it performs its work in you who believe. And so the work that the Word of God does is happening within us. And it's a work that's going on 
you know, silently. We, we see the benefits of it eventually if, we're, if we stick with it long enough. We have to be patient. And that's why I use this snail as, as I used it yesterday. Uh, and there's a quote from there on that picture from Charles Spurgeon who, who said once a while ago, <laughs> by perseverance the snail reached the ark. And, you know, whether, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not concerned with the ark of the, uh, Noah's ark right now, but what I am concerned with is perseverance. Why would we persevere in the word of God? Because it comes from God. We're accountable to it. We're children of God. It's God's message to us. If it's the word of men, then you know we'll pick and choose the parts of it we like and we'll say the parts that we don't like are probably not inspired or not from God. And, and people have done this. Um, it's, we have Easter coming up, the resurrection of Christ, which we celebrate on Sunday. And there's plenty of denominations out there who don't believe that it is an actual physical miracle. And they call themselves Christians. And the reason why that has happened is because uh, liberal theology hit the Bible many years ago. And they started to interpret the Bible not literally, but more allegorically. And, uh, you know, and saying, well, you know, that miracles didn't actually happen. Um, and that's just basically not true. Why would we submit to the things that the Scripture says? Why do we absolutely fully claim that Christ rose from the dead. I haven't seen him risen, neither of you. And why do we claim that? You know, to our own deaths we would. And that is because the word of God is from God. We receive it from God. What the Gospels say, what the writers say about the resurrection of Christ and about everything else is the authority of God. And <clears throat> if you love God's word and heed its authority... You commit to it. Are you perfect? No. But if you commit to it, to do it, to actually live it, because this is from God, this is not from man, then you see its benefit. You see its work in you over time. And that's why you have to be patient. It will take time. And sometimes you won't feel like you're growing at all. Sometimes you'll feel like you know, that you're the same old person you were years ago. But you're, I guarantee you, you're not. And, and God is going to... I think God tests us here in many ways. God is, uh, leaves us quite at the same level, I think, for a while to test us and see, will you submit to the Word of God because it's from God? And for that reason only. If you're not currently seeing any benefits from it, in other words, you don't see any growth lately, or maybe it even seems like you're going backwards, are you going to stick to hearing it, submitting to it? And by that, you're being tested on its authority. And it is a test. By faith, we pass these tests. And God is wonderful to us in this, in that when we pass such tests that God is going to you know, bring things into our lives that are going to reveal to us this tremendous growth that we've had. And it may come suddenly, and you'll rejoice in it. It is so worth it. Notice, the Word of God, look, notice what uh, Peter wrote, Peter in First Peter one twenty five. He said, the Word of the Lord abides forever. Imagine the work that it can do to transform you. If the Word of God is eternal, and it is. First, uh, John 1.1 1, 1 is the word was God. And God created the earth, the heavens and the earth. Hebrews chapter 1 is verse 3, verses 1 through 3. Uh, I think it's, it might even be 1.1. 1, 1. Not that it matters. <laughs> it's in Hebrews chapter 1 right there at the open of that wonderful letter that the worlds were formed by the word of God. The word where God spoke, things happened. Now, think, think of what, if that power, when God says, let there be light, there's light. He doesn't, he doesn't say it and then, like, turn on a switch. He, when he says it, it happens. His word make thing, makes things happen. Imagine what the word of God can do to you when it's within you. God has designed us as believers now as new creatures in Christ to be indwelt by God, the Holy Spirit. We, we could never be indwelt by the Spirit if we weren't righteous. God has made us righteous through the cross of Christ and justified us by his resurrection. And because of that, 
just as it happened at Pentecost, it happens to every single believer the moment they believe in Christ, that they're made the temple of God, they're imputed with righteousness, God's very righteousness, they're changed, they're completely changed. And by being completely changed, you are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. You're designed now to receive God's word and have it change you. And as I said yesterday, when we became born again and saved, all of our problems, all of our sins, all of our addictions, all of them, we were set free from them all. And if you're like me, you've heard that message in the past and said, well, here I am, still addicted. I don't think you're telling me the truth, Pastor. But the fact of the matter is that they were right when they said it. And I am right when I say it because it comes from the Word of God. We were freed from all sin. The issue is, not that we're not freed, it's that in our hearts we're still holding on. See, if you're freed from an addiction, but you're still holding on to it because you like it, because you love it, the problem is not your freedom. The problem is you're holding on. Your problem is your refusal to let go. Yes, it's hard. Of course it's hard. Going, you know, we've been talking about this a lot lately. Nobody likes change. We've grown quite familiar with sin and with addiction. And we've become familiar with these things. And God has flung the doors of the prison open. The slave market of sin is the doors are open. You've been unchained. And you're no longer a slave to sin. Paul says this. Romans 6 says it the best, I think. And being unchained, now under grace and not under sin, as Paul said, use the, use the members of your body as instruments of righteousness. Romans 6, 13. And we can. The reason why we don't is because we're holding on. So, what's going to convince us to let go? When we now, as believers, made righteous, holy, just, as elected believers in Christ, we have all the power to let go. What's going to convince us to do it? And that is the Word of God. The Word of God transforms you. The Word of God abides forever. The Word of God is God. The Word of God made the worlds. And the Word of God can change you. And even your stupidity in holding on to things that you shouldn't. Now, there are other believers, obviously, who prefer the things of the world. And when they hear the Word of God, they're going to discover that. You know, the Word of God is alive and powerful. It judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And when any believer listens to the Word of God, his thoughts and intentions, intentions means motives, his thoughts and his motives are judged, and he sees them. But what if that believer still prefers the things of the world to the things of God? Well, God the Holy Spirit will convict them, and this will happen over time. Yeah, as you know, I'm fully convinced that there is such a thing as a carnal believer. I'm convinced of that because the Bible says so. And a carnal believer will be convicted by the Holy Spirit over time that, you know, here you are, you're a child of God, but you don't have peace. You're a child of God, but you're not truly happy. You're a child of God, but your life is a mess. And the Holy Spirit is convicting and convicting of this. And God will be sure to reveal to you that there's something wrong in your soul. There's something wrong in there. And you'll be convicted of this. Now, for some believers, that's enough. The conviction that something is wrong will cause them to desire to change. And then they'll rush towards the Word of God seeking its healing. And they will find it. But if they resist... Well, God is still not done with them. If we refuse to listen, then God will turn up the heat, what we call discipline. He will, God will, because he loves us, exact discipline upon us. That is also in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, as many other, as other passages. But Hebrews 12 says it best, that there is no child of God who has not experienced discipline from God. And though he disciplines us, he, we will not die. It'll hurt, but it's a good thing. So look at Hebrews 4.1. Therefore, let us fear. Is that 
on my glasses, excuse me. Therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you should seem to come short of it. For indeed, and does that promise remain? It certainly does. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us. And good news is really gospel. That's what gospel means. Euangelon in Greek means good news. We have had the good news preached to us just as they also. Now, who's the they here? We're familiar with this group. This is the Exodus. The Exodus generation spent 40 years in the wilderness because they wouldn't trust God. They should have really spent one year in the wilderness and gone into the promised land. But when the 12 spies came back, Caleb and Joshua said, let's go. God is going to deliver the land into our hands. The other 10 spies said it's impossible. We're all going to die. And for the the great majority of the congregation of Israel uh, decided that they should go back to Egypt and elect themselves a new leader. Uh, They failed. And because the spies spent 40 days in the promised land scouting it out, God exacted upon them a discipline of 40 years in the wilderness. Um, and, And that's the contrast. So, the Exodus generation is held up to us as an example of those who didn't mix God's promises with faith. And, and, and faith would make us bold with the promises of God. In other words, yeah, there's giants in the land. And, and for us in our lives, there are things that look insurmountable. Maybe they are our own issues, our own problems, our own addictions. Maybe it is... Uh, are situations of suffering. We see in Thessalonians that they suffered. We'll see in Hebrews that they suffered as well. Uh, We see in many passages in the New Testament that all believers are called to suffer. Jesus said, Blessed are you if you're persecuted for my namesake, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. And that's in in, uh, uh, Matthew 5, I think it's verse 9. one of, the, the, one of the last of the Beatitudes. Blessed are you if you're persecuted for my namesake. Uh, so <clears throat> the Exodus generation is held to us as an example of those who did not mix the promises of God with faith. So he says in verse 2 again, For indeed we have had good news preached to us just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed entered that rest, just as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Now, here, this finished work brings up an excellent, wonderful truth about what God has provided for humanity, and that is called the Sabbath. Now, when we hear the word Sabbath, we often think of like Saturdays. But that's not exactly what it was initially. When God finished the works to create the world, on the seventh day, he rested. That was God's Sabbath. On that seventh day, everything was finished. And God said it was very good. And so, uh, man and woman are alive in the wilderness, uh, not the wilderness, in the Garden of Eden, Uh, and uh, they have everything provided for them. They're protected, they're provided for, they're given trees that are good for the eyes, trees that are good for the body, Uh, they have each other, and all they got to do is bask in God's finished work. So that's what Sabbath really means. We often think of Sabbath as, you know, uh, that we don't do any work. But that's often... Uh, overdone, and I think because the the Jews had overdone it uh, by adding so many Sabbath rules, it's not necessary. The Sabbath isn't necessarily a lack of work, work, as much as it is a uh, experience of living in God's grace. That's really what the Sabbath is. The Sabbath is us thriving in the grace and the love of God, just like Adam and the woman did in the garden. Again, the initial Sabbath is Adam and the woman in the garden having all the work finished. Uh, But it's not that they did nothing. So, his works are finished from the foundation of the world. Why in in this quote here from the Old Testament, as I swore in my wrath, they won't enter my rest, 
is because in here the, the rest would be their, their promised land, which is analogous to the Garden of Eden. Uh, if they had been faithful to God, God said, uh, five of you would chase a thousand, meaning that you're, you wouldn't, your enemies, I would protect you from your enemies in the, in the, uh, <coughs> uh, the uh, promised land, sorry, in the promised land that God would protect them from their enemies, that God would provide for them uh, what they needed, and that they could be faithful to God's word, be faithful to God's plan, and enjoy and rest, but particularly for them on Saturday, which we'll get to. So in verse 4, he says, For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Of course, the writer knows where that's written, but he's writing to Jews and he's opening up their eyes saying, look, somewhere in your scripture, which of course is in Genesis, that God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Well, why can't they enter his rest? It's because of disobedience and lack of faith. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them, failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day. Today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as it has been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. So what the writer of Hebrews is, he's writing to Jews. And these Jews have been confused by their own suffering and by... The fact that in the church age now, these are Jewish believers in the very beginning of the church who are being drawn back to temple service, who are being drawn back to the Mosaic Law because they're being persecuted for leaving the Mosaic Law. And the writer of Hebrews is using their own past in their own Old Testament to reveal to them the fullness or fulfillment of all of those things in Christ. So, in other words, God rested on the seventh day, but then we threw it away. Right? We, we ate of the tree. We were banished from the garden. No more rest. We had to toil by the sweat of our brow to even exist, to live, to survive. Then God gives a Sabbath rest to Israel on Saturday. Every Saturday and also every seventh year was a Sabbath year in which you weren't to plant and you weren't to reap and you were to let set free all the slaves and uh, re, uh, remit all debts. And so that's, that's a rest. That's a year of rest. And yet they failed to do that. They failed to rest on the Sabbath. And <clears throat> when they were convicted of that, then they added more rules to the Sabbath. And the Sabbath didn't become a day of rest. It became a day of anxiety. And so through David... God says in the Psalms, if you'll hear his voice, right? Listen, O Israel, if you'll hear his voice. What is his voice to us? Well, it's not audible from heaven. It's right here in God's word. Here's the voice, the word of God. If you'll hear it, don't harden your heart. So just as Paul said to the Thessalonians, you receive the word is not from me, but from God. They did not harden their hearts. And so the writer continues. He's building an argument here. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. Meaning God would not have. God said the rest is coming. A rest is coming. Did Joshua give it to them? Now why does he mention Joshua? Well, Joshua is the one who conquers the promised land. And when the promised land was conquered... Was it perfect rest from that time out? No, it was not. The enemies were still in the land. The Canaanites, all those ites were still there. Um, Many of them were still there. And Israel had to fight them if they dared to, which they didn't, and to remove them so that they could trust God and establish rest. But it didn't happen. So, you know, God spoke of a future. And then that future came. When did it come? Well, when Christ was born, but really when Christ was resurrected. Now, we could say when Christ died, true, but the resurrection 
revealed to us. As you know, all the disciples thought it was over. They thought Christ was dead. Uh, They knew he was dead, meaning, but they did not believe or adhere to the teaching that he told them that he would be resurrected. And they stumbled at that. They lost hope. But then when Christ came to them in resurrection, all of a sudden hope is returned. You know, they see him resurrected. They lost all their fear. You know, it's not just that they received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, that they were so bold at Pentecost, but also the very real knowledge by touching him that their Lord was alive. And that made all the difference. So now, you know, that God spoke of a rest that was coming in the future, and now it has come through Christ. So all believers are at peace? No, that's the issue. The issue is that all believers are not at peace, meaning that not all believers have subjected themselves to God's Word. And if you have, and for those of you who are members here, I mean, that you wouldn't be here if you didn't, at least weren't trying to submit yourself to God's Word, that you know you will see the fruit of that, and you should rejoice in that. You should also be reminded that the Word of God is alive. And that it is God. It needs your respect. It needs your concentration. And it also needs your submission to it. So he says in verse 9, So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And what is it? It just means Saturday. No. This means every day. This means all the time. This is an actual Sabbath rest that takes us back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and the woman did not rest just one day a week. They rested all the time they were there. They still worked. They toiled the ground. They protected. They were told to protect the garden. We don't know exactly how they did that, but it doesn't matter. They were told to do it. They were told to till the soil, to till the ground. And so they had things to do. They enjoyed one another. They enjoyed the presence of God. They enjoyed the word of God, whatever was taught to them. And they enjoyed their work. And so are we too. So a Sabbath rest is not a lack of work. A Sabbath rest is enjoying and prospering in God's grace. This is a day-by-day, moment-by-moment rest because I am free, I am set free, I am no longer under my sins, I am forgiven, I am indwelt by God, I am the temple of God. On and on, you know the list of things that God has blessed us with. And therefore, we rest. So he says in verse 10, For the one who has entered into his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. And this doesn't mean that we don't do any work. It means that we're not building anything for survival, say. Uh, We do what we do and God will provide for us. doesn't mean we don't do anything. But we seek first his kingdom. And so our work is not, you know, we better do this, this, and this, or we won't survive. Generally not true. We do what we do in the service of God and know that God will provide. We know that. Jesus told us, consider the birds, the lilies, the grass. God takes care of them. You're far more valuable than they. Keep seeking his kingdom. See, that's, it means that we have a lot of work to do. But the work is for the kingdom. It's not for us. It's not, oh, geez, you know, if if things don't work out, we're all going to die. It's not true. God's providence will provide. And so as God has rested from his works, meaning that the work to deliver us from sin and death is completed in Christ, so do we enter that rest. You see what the Sabbath rest is? It's beautiful. It's It's not just do nothing on a Saturday. It's rest in God's grace and do a bunch of stuff, but rest in God's grace. It's not doing nothing. As the board says, it's thriving in God's sphere of love and leaving the results to God. I'm going to love you. I don't know what you're going to do to me in return, but I rest in it. You know, I'm not anxious about it. 
I'm going to pour myself into the things that God has told me to do, my, my, even my work, my earthly work, my family, my job, my everything. And I'm going to do it as unto the Lord, and I'm going to leave the results in God's hands. So I'm going to actually enjoy life. Imagine such a concept. I'm going to actually enjoy life and thrive because God has my back. God loves me. And God will never forsake me. I'm convinced that nothing will separate me from the love of God, even if I do die. And so I thrive. So, he says in verse 11, Therefore, be diligent. Let us be diligent to enter into that rest. That's a wonderful little uh, uh, hortatory, I think it's hortatory, uh, subjunctive there. Where he says, let us, it's uh, it's used in the Greek quite often, this, let's all together do this. It's a, it's almost in, it's almost a command, but it's not. It's in the subjunctive mood. It means, let's do this. Let us what? Be diligent to enter into that rest. And this means what? Well, it's not going to be automatic, is it? It's not automatic. I've got to put the effort in to hearing God's word. See, all the work to make me what I am has been done at salvation. But it is the word of God that's going to transform my heart into conformity with what I am and what God has made me to be. Make me walk out of that prison. The sins I'm holding on to, the addictions I'm holding on to, the fears I'm holding on to, the worries that I'm holding on to, God is telling me, let them go. I say, well, I'm scared. And God says, but look, trust me. Yeah, there's giants in the land. Who gives a darn? Right? Who cares? God is with us. It's like Caleb said. I was reading about I was reading Joshua this morning, and Caleb, he was 40 years old when he went to spy out the land. And by the time they conquered the land, uh, he's 45 years later. So he's 85 years old. Joshua. Not, not Joshua, sorry. Caleb. Caleb. Uh, Caleb spies the land when he's 40. He's 85 when he goes to Joshua and says, give me the allotment of land that was promised to me. He said, I'm as strong now as I was then. And you just, as you read the lines, you can just see the confidence and boldness in this man. That, <clears throat> and why is he strong? He said, I'm as strong at 85 that I was at 40. Why is he like that? It's because, and that's not a promise to any of us. Our bodies could fall apart. But... Caleb trusted, just like Joshua did. There were only two who did. So he says, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, meaning apply faith, so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. And that was the case with the Exodus generation. Their disobedience caused this. So the Sabbath rest is for our whole lives, resting our hearts in faith. It doesn't mean doing no work. We're to do a lot of work. But the work that we do is the work that the Father wills us to do. We do it without being anxious about the results. We trust in God. We rest in God. And we enjoy the work. And therefore, we enjoy our lives. If things don't work out right, if when the problems come and they will, Thessalonians suffered, and in Hebrews they suffered, and... Actually, I can't think of a book where, you know, outside of Ephesians that is not really written to a particular church. But when when the the letters are written to particular churches and everyone, Philippians onward, that they they seem to all have suffering in them. And of course, because they separated themselves from the world and the world persecuted them, just like we were promised. Now, The writer of Hebrews, after establishing this, this Sabbath rest that is now current, not just on Saturday, but because we rest in the finished work of Christ, he's been convincing the people he's writing to, these Jewish Christians in the early church, and they're in Judea, by the way, 
that's important to remember for when we get back to 1 Thessalonians 2, that they're persecuted greatly and um, they're saved, they're sanctified believers, and they're leaving, they're being drawn back to the Mosaic Law and they're leaving God's rest behind. And just like the Exodus did, and, and that's why he's using that example to them. Uh, so now, what the writer is going to do is show us the fact that the Word of God is going to see it and reveal it to us. And what is the it? Whether you're resting in God or not. You know, we can tell others, we can try and convince others, we can you know, put on the face in public that says, oh yeah, our lives are together and we're very happy, uh, but you know, it could betray the truth. But when it comes to learning how to rest, it is faith in God's Word. And God's Word itself is going to show you whether you are or you're not. Do you submit to it? The Word's going to test that, not me. Not anybody else either. God is going to use His Word to test you. And if you're listening, you're going to want to know the answer. And that is another key difference here between those who accept the Word of God as from God and those who would rather it not be. And I do mean believers, you know, who are not so committed to God's Word. That the Word of God is going to show the inner thoughts. So as we see it here in verse 12, very famous verse, For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so in verse 12, we see, and it's wonderful, really quite poetic, metaphorical language, that the Word of God is seen here as alive, active, meaning it's powerful, and that it's super sharp, meaning that it can get down, down deep, into the deepest recesses of our hearts. In other words, we can't really hide anything from God's Word. God's Word is going to pierce between joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions, which are motivations of the heart. Therefore, the Word of God is going to reveal what you truly think and what, you're, what truly motivates you. And the question is, do you want to know that? As if you submit... Uh, there's not one of us who doesn't have something wrong. right? None of us are perfect. All of us need to keep growing. And so if you're submitted to the Word of God as from God, you're going to want to know that information. Like You actually want God to judge your heart and show you what's up, what's wrong. And also, and I often talk about what's wrong, but I also mean what's good. You know, what, what is going on in there that's of God, that's good stuff? And you're going to want to know that too because you desire to live this life that God has provided. <clears throat> so if we're listening, the Word of God being active and sharp will reveal to us if we're resting in God or not. Some believers want to know this. And they want to know this because they want to change. They want to change more, more and more and more into conformity with Christ. They never rest meaning they rest, but not the rest that Hebrews is talking about here. I mean, they're constantly diligent. As he said, let us be diligent in verse 11, that they're constantly diligent to want to know and to grow, and they're actually enjoying the reprovals of God, uh, really from God's Word, and they're grateful for them. But then there are those who don't really want to grow but prefer the pleasures of the world. Uh, They don't listen to God's word with the intent of obedience. The pain that the word of God causes them when it judges their thoughts and motivations is actually quite unwelcomed. Because, you know, the word of God's revealing that you are not submitted to it. The word of God is revealing. It's, It's piercing you deep down to show that you're not submitted to it. You're not committed to it. And that you would rather, in fact, have the pleasures of the world rather than serving God. So, the Word of God reveals that. Not me. I'm, I'm 
you know, the Word of God is just coming from my mouth here. I'm just reading the Scripture and interpreting it for you. So it's not for me. It, it, the same thing occurs to me that the problem with believers is the response to this, or the good thing about believers is the response to this. If, if the pain that the Word of God causes, and it causes pain even to the positive, to those who want it, because it's correcting. Correction is always somewhat painful, but we're grateful for it if we want to change. But if we want to keep our lives that are, that are in the pursuit of the pleasures of the world, then when we're judged by the Word of God, we consider that very unwelcome. And what do we do? Well, either we forget about the Word of God entirely and leave it. And a lot of believers do that. They leave it. They'll go find a church that doesn't teach the Word of God if they want to go to church. Or maybe they don't go to church at all. And uh, they don't want anything that challenges them in any way. So they can forget about it. They can sweep it under the rug, so to speak. They can stay away from it. And that attitude makes it far easier to pursue the pleasures of the world. Uh, yesterday we saw the parable of the sower. I remind you here again in Luke 8:14. This was the third example of seed that the Lord told in this parable. And he says in Luke 8:14, The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard. And as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and the pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. And see, in Luke's account, Matthew doesn't, in Matthew's account, he doesn't use the phrase pleasures of this life, but Luke does, uh, which means the Lord said it. The Lord said that if we're in the pursuit of, in other words, first we're worrying. Worrying is a lack of faith. We know this. This is quite obvious, but it should be reiterated. If I'm worrying about things that are going to happen, I'm not trusting God for it. Uh, so worry is a lack of faith in God's word. And the pursuit of riches and pleasures, which usually go hand in hand. And is there anything wrong with pleasure? No, as long as it comes from God. Is there anything wrong with riches? No, as long as it comes from God. But the pursuit of it is the love of it. And the Lord says here it brings no fruit to maturity. So, as the Lord said in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, you'll, you have your reward in full. If you're in the pursuit of the pleasures of this life, you'll likely find them. But you'll likely also be disillusioned, right? Especially as a believer, say you're seeking sexual pleasure in an illicit way, and let's say you find it. Will it be pleasurable for a little while? Yes. But will it be fulfilling? Will it be the pleasure that Somehow, deep in the recesses of your heart, God is convicting you that there is a pleasure that is of heaven, that is permanent, that is unalterable by outside circumstances, and that exists within you all by itself, without any stimulation outside of yourself, coming into yourself, that it comes from God and that it exists by God within you. And I think every believer is convicted of that, that that has to be, and there are so few that find it, uh, and for this very reason. You know, why would the Lord teach this? It's because it's so very common that the seed is heard. The seed in, in the parable is the Word of God. He says that and right at the beginning of it here in Luke 8. The seed is the Word of God. These are the ones who heard the word of God. They go on their way, but then they become worried, meaning that they don't put their faith in the word of God. Think of the Exodus generation that we're looking at here in, in Hebrews uh, 4. They were worried all the time. You know, not enough food. Uh, and, and they sought pleasure in the fact that, you know, they got sick of manna and they wanted meat. Um, they sought uh, the, the uh, ways of other people. They sought idol worship, all which is wrapped up in pleasure-seeking from the world. And the Lord says here, you're not going to mature. In other words, you're not going to see your best life. Not in this life. 
So it's a wonderful thing about there's a, a there is another. Um, so let me say this: as the Lord said so simply and clearly, we cannot serve two masters. Either our pleasure is in God, or it's in the world or the flesh. And the wonderful thing about that sobering truth is that if you do recognize that you have given yourself over to the wrong master, that in grace and full forgiveness you can turn away from the old master, which is the flesh or the world, the pleasures of the world, the seeking of riches and pleasures, or even worry, that you can turn from that old master and follow the one true master. Because you're forgiven. It's a recognition of this that sets us free. The other option is when we discover that the word of God, that we're following the wrong master, we can sweep that information under the rug and forget about it. And we can try to hide. We can try to hide it. <laughs> it's amazing. I talked about this yesterday. The capacity that we have to lie to ourselves. That we can lie to ourselves and say, well, life is okay. Life is okay. In other words, it's good enough. Is it? Is it good enough? We also lie to others, putting on the proper mask that seems to show that our life is all together and that we're happy and that we have it all together, and it's anything but. We can hide the addictions that we have uh, and that we used to, uh, the addictions that we've become used to because our lives are unfulfilled, we're trying to fill them with something, which is usually pleasure-seeking and other words, we're not being honest. The writer of Hebrews is careful to show that what the Word of God sees, God sees. What is the point in lying to God and therefore lying to yourself or vice versa? What is the point in lying to yourself and therefore lying to God? If we want to hide our inner selves, the Word of God will reveal it. So here's a solution that people have, Christians have. I'm going to ignore the Word of God and then God won't see it. Then I can lie to myself. But the writer of Hebrews continues to state that even if you do ignore the word of God or ignore scripture, you can hide yourself from God. Verse 13, For there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Is your heart like the Exodus generation? You just won't trust it. When situations come where you can just put your faith in God's Word and simply do what the Word of God tells you, or do something else, do you do that? Or, and again, I, I want to be as, as positive here as I possibly can, that if you're a follower of the Word of God, you should rejoice. The Word of God is doing its work in you. It's a medicine, right? God's medicine. And you're taking it in. As you're taking it in and putting your faith in it, it's changing you. Periods of time go by where it doesn't look like much change is happening. Also periods of time where there seems to be a lot of suffering and uh, pain in life. And at those times, we're tested. Are you going to still read and hear God's Word? Are you going to lay it aside because you're in pain? But what does the Word of God tell us to do with pain? What is God? So and that's what we're going to. You know, what does this truth tell us about the pain that we feel, about the persecution that we're under, about the the you know the things that we're holding on to that are causing us sorrow? What does it say to do? And if I put my faith in this, I can rejoice because I know that over time it's going to transform transform me into conformity with his will. But, and then God tells us this, you know, all of that's true. And we can say, well, hallelujah, I'll see you later, God. I'm going to be off onto my life. And, you know, I'm not going to enact any changes. And God says, well, look, I see everything. So stop lying. God's omniscience. That's what this is. No creature is hidden from his sight. That's God's omniscience. I use the lighthouse here as an example. That the light shining. Oh, not in that one. The next one coming up. Sorry. Uh, the you know you can think of that that light in a dark place that is illuminating 
you know, I think it's dark in there. I think I'm hiding it from God. I've locked the door in my soul and padlocked it with a hundred padlocks. And I took God, you can't go in there and look. And God says, I, how do you expect me not to see when I see all? It's one of the one of the titles for God in Genesis 16. It was the God who sees. I think it's El Roi in Hebrew. Uh, no, when God's omniscience forces us to be honest, there's no more lying to self. No, and, and it also means confession. Confess to God. You're confessing what He already sees, but it's healing you. You know, confession of sin is an honesty with God that this has broken your will. I'm not going to even see all my sins remotely, but what I see, I confess. I said this, I've broken your will. And, and it's an acknowledgement that I don't want to break your will. Forgive us our sins. Forgive us our debts. No more hiding. Meaning hiding from God, hiding from others, hiding from the church. And frequent and honest prayer. No more hiding from God. Because he sees all. Uh, <clears throat> and, it, and a great application of prayer here in the omniscience of God that you know, when you pray, you don't have to get all the words right. He sees it. You don't have to explain yourself perfectly. He sees it. And as Romans 8 says, the Holy Spirit helps our weakness when we pray. So God tells us about his omniscient power for this very reason. He's not showing off as if he wants to do that. God is showing us that it is absolutely stupid to lie to ourselves and lie to him. Be honest. And honesty can be the beginning of something marvelous in the transformation of a believer's heart. <clears throat> so God notices everything, even the little things. David writes, here's my lighthouse. Uh, Psalm 139, 1 and 2. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down. You know when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. We must be honest with ourselves. God sees when we sit down. That means he's concerned about it. He's, as Jesus said, the very hairs of your head are numbered. That everything that we do, everything that we think, every motivation that we have, he sees. Now what he wants us to do is see what he sees. And how are we going to see what he sees? The word of God that is alive and powerful is going to pierce deep down and if we're humble before it and obedient to it, not, not just reading it, but actually putting it into practice, we are going to see what we are. And a lot of what you're going to see, if you've been lying to yourself, I did this for so long, I probably still do, that if you're lying to yourself about what things are, what is real, what is not, you're lying to yourself about what you're made of and what you love and what your motivations are, if you're lying to yourself, when the Word of God reveals it, it is going to be an eye-opener. And it's not going to be pretty. But, you know, it, you, but when, so when you see in the mirror of the Word of God, like the ugliness that you are, you also know, like the Word of God reminds you, of this, these great positional truths that you're in Christ, that God loves you, that He'll never leave you, that He always forgives you, that He longs for you to worship Him. He wants to walk with you. He wants a closeness with you. On and on. He sees you as He sees His own Son. And so all of this together would cause us to want to change into conformity with His will. And that all stems from receiving God's Word as from God. And when we do that, the Word of God changes us. So, the Word of God is the greatest medicine there is for the soul. It's the only medicine there is for the soul. And when you submit to it by faith over time, it is going to change you entirely from the very core of you, uh, and make you, and you're going to love those changes, as painful as they can be at times. Now, what we're going to see uh, next time is how all of this is done with the Word of God, even in the midst of a lot of 
pain. And that's what Paul's going to lead us into next. He's going to say, Thessalonians, you received the word of God as from God, and it's changed you, it's made amazing changes in you, and you also even did that while all those around you were persecuting you. We're going to see how we deal with that and what kind of further tests those are for us. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for your word. And thank you for this marvelous passage in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. That the word of God is from you. It's a simple but profound truth. It changes our whole attitude towards what truth really is. And um, we're so grateful, Father, that you have revealed yourself in your word and that your word, though it is ink on a page, when it becomes into our souls and we understand it through God the Holy Spirit, it is, it is alive and powerful and sharp so that it reveals us and changes us. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Please tell us why you had to hide.